Hello, welcome to CMEC's podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of CMEC. It was a decade ago that a Tunisian street vendor called Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire out of sheer desperation. His act of despair led to protests, uprisings and revolution that swept across the whole Middle East in what became known as the Arab Spring. Ten years later, the effects, changes and scars of the so-called Arab Spring live on, and far from seeing a new spring, some countries are still mired in chaos and conflict a decade on. Yesterday, we spoke to two British ambassadors in the region at the time, Chris O'Connor OBE, who was ambassador to Tunisia, and James Watt CVO, our ambassador to Egypt, two countries which emerged from their Arab Spring in very different ways. Today, we turn to a country that has yet to emerge from a seemingly endless Arab winter, Syria. I'm joined by the distinguished Syrian-born writer Reem Alaf and by former diplomat Simon Collis. Simon was UK ambassador to Syria when the civil war began in 2011. Simon has had a distinguished diplomatic career across the Middle East, having also been ambassador to Iraq, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Charlotte. And Reem Alaf. Reem is a Syrian-born writer, editor and public speaker, a former associate fellow at Chatham House. She is a board member of the Syrian civil society organisation The Day After, and is also on the advisory council of the Middle East Institute's Syria programme. Reem, hello. Thank you, Charlotte. Reem and Simon, thanks so much for being with us. Simon, If I could start with you, from a UK ambassador's perspective, what were the facts of the situation when you arrived as an ambassador in Syria? And how did these develop during your time there? I arrived in Damascus in late 2007. And the internal situation in Syria at that time was that uh, quite a lot of the shine had come off the new young president, Ashar al-Assad, the son of Hafiz al-Assad, the previous president. And Bashar had been in office for something like seven years. There'd been a lot of talk and hope about reform, but nothing much had changed except the gradual emergence of what was pretty clearly a culture of crony capitalism. You know, what reform looked like was crony capitalism, which may be something familiar to people who've lived and worked in formerly communist Europe. Externally, regionally, Syria's situation was that the regime had poor relations with the US. There was no uh, ambassador, no American ambassador in Damascus. And above all, the situation in Iraq was driving regional tensions. So the neoconservatives in Washington, at the outset of the intervention in Iraq, had pretty much said pretty clearly that after doing Iraq, they were thinking of doing Syria or Iran even. And so unsurprisingly, the Syrian regime's first priority was to ensure that the coalition's presence in Iraq was as costly and painful as possible so that there would be no appetite to repeat the experience elsewhere. And to that end, they were not just turning a blind eye to foreign fighters and terrorists moving through Syria into Iraq, but were actively facilitating. With the arrival of President Obama and the pretty clear change in American policy towards the region. The focus shifted towards encouraging the authorities in Damascus to 
look to the West as a potential partner for reforms, if indeed they wish to continue with reform. Some modest steps were taken that resulted eventually in the return of an American ambassador to Damascus, Robert Ford. And there was more talk of internal change, but still nothing much was happening. So that was the situation when the first signs of the Arab Spring began in Tunis and then in Egypt. And I remember reporting to London in answer to the question, will this happen in Syria also? My honest answer was, I don't know, but it certainly could. It's possible. And when you look at the underlying situation, demographics, stifled economy, young population with scant hope of reasons to be optimistic about their future life chances. Quite a lot of the conditions were there for a possible protest movement. So that was the situations we came to at the end of 2010. Reem, from a Syrian's perspective, what was happening in Syrian society at that time? What were the drivers to the events of 2011? And, and how did it feel being a Syrian and, and a woman during all this? Well, I have to concur with Ambassador Collis. Simon has an excellent insight into Syria because he was there and he was able to see these changes in Syrian society. And truly, people who tried to understand the changes in Syria would not have been so surprised. I think it did help for Syrians to have seen this movement growing across the region. It did start in Tunisia, as you mentioned, Charlotte. And one important factor is the factor of dignity. When Mohamed Bouazizi burned himself in Tunis, it's also because he felt humiliated. And this is one of the words that we heard over and over throughout the Arab world as this so-called spring was spreading. It was the notion of a life with dignity that all these regimes in the region were and continue to deny their citizens. So when the Syrians were watching what happened in Tunis and then in Cairo and then in Benghazi and in Tripoli, I don't think that this is the only spark that made them move, but certainly the notion of dignity was important to them. As Simon just explained to us, things were going, uh, were getting worse over the years. This crony capitalist economy, which was done only to benefit a very small circle of society. It was those who were very closely related or connected to the regime who were able to live it up. And at the same time, the middle class was slowly eroding. It was becoming poorer by the day. Education was disintegrating. There never was a real health system to speak of as we understand it in most countries in the world. And most importantly, the regime completely ignored those factors. So everything was brewing slowly. Syrians knew no matter what class or what kind of life you lived in Syria, you could see that things were getting worse and worse for others. In cities like Damascus and in Aleppo, there were literally slums developing around the suburbs and you really had to be blind not to notice that something was going to give. At the same time, the regime was extremely arrogant. It felt invincible. It felt it had survived a number of upheavals. As Simon mentioned, the entire Iraq war scenario, Bashar felt that he survived this. In 2006, we had the war between Israel and Hezbollah. And because Hezbollah was de facto undefeated, 
again, Bashar Assad felt strong again, which means that after a freezing of relations with most of the Western world following the assassination of Rafiq Hariri in 2005, when we got close to the Arab Spring, at the end of that first decade of Bashar's reign, he felt strong again. And that's why shortly before the demonstrations began in, in Syria, just a month before he spoke to the Wall Street Journal and said, this will not happen in Syria. So that shows the disconnect between the regime, not only in Syria, but of others. But if you ask people in Syria and beyond, they knew that something was about to happen. Simon, I was lucky enough to visit you in Syria in February 2011, just before the civil war started. And I will never forget a a memorable meeting between you, UK MPs, and I recall the Prime Minister of Syria. What did it feel like to be a UK ambassador at such a tense time? Well, yes, um, that was quite a visit, wasn't it? And we met the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, who was a a reformist by Syrian regime standards. And, And I think you and the other members of Parliament with you heard two quite contradictory narratives from, first of all, from the old school Prime Minister and then from this new younger guy. And that was typical of a number of the conversations we had. It was quite a febrile time. I think the regime at that time genuinely believed that it would not happen in Syria. As as Reem mentioned, uh, Bashar had given an interview saying it, it wouldn't. I think as far as the ideological battle went, the battleground there went, they had genuinely convinced themselves, but because they were the kind of regime that quote-unquote, stood with the opposition, stood with the resistance, that they were not exposed to the same sort of uprising from below. You know, we are the people already, was their kind of Ba'athist rhetoric. The battleground, actually on the ground, I think compared with some of the other places where the protests had begun to break out, the regime was confident in the reach of their intelligence, the ruthlessness and lethality of their security forces and that they were, you know, ready to kill their way to victory. I think that was a mindset from the beginning. It wasn't something that just came later. It was it was there from the beginning and is part of who the Ba'athist regime are and the securocrats who, who run them. When the parliamentary delegation came and we, we had quite a lot of exposure to senior Syrians, we heard all of those narratives. And yet, as Reem has just mentioned, there was already a strong popular groundswell running. And how I felt about it was that it was clearly a dangerous time. Regime officials would try and warn me and other European ambassadors and the uh, the Americans that if Syria became unstable, then the whole region would become unstable and that that would be a disaster. And we kind of said, well, we understand that. But the main thing we had to do was to explain or try and explain that to Syrian officials, you don't have a Syria West problem. This is not a Syria West thing. We are observing this. We have values. We're not actually intervening. We're not active. What you have is a Syria-Syrian problem. And I think they were never prepared to admit that, uh, certainly not to us, but I think they found it difficult to admit that to themselves. And that's probably at the heart of the failure of the regime to engage with the moderate opposition when the protests were still peaceful. They didn't want to do it because they didn't think they needed to. And as it evolved, very quickly it became clear that the regime strategy 
was to polarise the situation so that they could present themselves as the only alternative to a radical Islamic opposition. And to that end, the focus of their violence and their repression was not actually the Islamists themselves. They released several thousand Islamists from prison to join the opposition, uh, weird as that may seem. Uh, that's what they did. The focus of their repression was on the moderate opposition, the civil society. These were the people who were detained, who were tortured and murdered. That was their approach from the beginning. And the efforts we made through that summer to try and encourage dialogue and offer a way forward before the regime acquired too much blood on its hands, frankly failed. So what it felt like to me was a time where potentially there was great optimism, but where it was important for people like myself, like Robert Ford, who had also served in Iraq, worked in Iraq before coming to Damascus, to say as clearly as we could to Syrian regime officials, to the protesters, those that we were talking to, civil society activists, and to our own capitals, to say as clearly as, as we could that there should not be any assumptions made that this would necessarily end well, that this could end very badly, very bloodily, and via a very protected conflict. There was nothing inevitable about that. I think in these situations there is often a bias in, in how people think. There's a cognitive bias. You know, People tend to be overly optimistic and to downplay risks. There is a bias to, of control sometimes that people think that actually it is possible to influence a situation when maybe that really is not the case. And there's a bias towards action, the idea that it's important to do something, just do something. And one of the roles of a, a diplomat can seem very old-fashioned, can seem very negative, but it's to be the voice of caution about where those aspirations might lead without standing in the way of the legitimate aspirations of brave young Syrian people who were demanding rights which were entirely in line with what people in the West would like to see. And managing expectations, including amongst the opposition, that at some point there would inevitably be a Western military intervention of some kind. That was essential not to make false promises. Thanks, Simon. Reem, can you describe how the situation then evolved after civil war broke out? Who led the challenge to Assad? Who got involved later? And how Syria became a, an arena for proxies? Charlotte, I think it's very important to, to stress one point here, is that for most Syrians, and especially those who are opposed to the Assad regime, this was not a civil war, nor did it become a civil war until many years later. It was a civilian, popular, peaceful uprising. It stunned the regime, as Simon very um, accurately described just now. The regime was not expecting this to happen because this is a regime that has been used to rule through intimidation and through terror. What changed the outlook for most Syrians who began to find the courage to stand up and go in the streets of all these cities and villages in Syria and chant these chants at the beginning that we want dignity, and then that turned to we want the downfall of the regime, were two things. First of all, because there was this wave throughout the Arab world, they felt, well, you know, we are not less than the others. We also want our dignity. The second point is that because there had been Western intervention of some sort 
in the different countries through diplomatic channels, but also through NATO's involvement in Libya, what most Syrians felt at the time, even though they were not requesting it, was that should things get out of control, this would not be allowed by the international community. Syrians had already experienced in 1982 a horrific massacre in Hama, where between 20 and 40,000 people had been killed after a Muslim Brotherhood-led uprising. And the thought at the time, including by myself, and I was at Chatham House at the time, and I was still following and analyzing events in Syria, was that this would not be allowed to happen. There would not be another Hama. The West would intervene, not through arms and not through boots on the ground, but through pressure, diplomatic, political, legal. This was the mood in the Syrian civil society and opposition at the time. And they will tell you that for the longest time, even though every day the number of people killed by Assad in broad daylight and documented widely by all the activists and by many journalists at the times, you know, the internet is full of those videos of people being shot. This was before the barrel bombs. This was before the heavy artillery. This was before the full invasion, if I may say, of the army and of the militias allied with Assad. But for all this time, there was a very strong resistance to asking for foreign help. So they still tried to show, look at what's being done to us. And there was still this big hope that there will be a certain point when the powerful countries, including the UK, of course, would come and tell Assad behind closed doors, this is as far as we will allow you to go. That moment never came. And that moment is also, I believe, the time when a lot of Syrians then reconsidered where they stood and thought, you know what, nobody's helping us. We're being killed at the time by the dozens. We were reaching 100 by the end of the year. And there was one development which is often forgotten in analysis on Syria, is that quite a number of young officers in the Syrian army early on refused to follow orders to shoot their compatriots. And there were many videos shown online in that first year of the Syrian what we now call civil war, of young officers standing in front of a camera, showing their IDs to the camera up close and saying, I am lieutenant or I am colonel so-and-so, and I hereby announce my defection for the army. This was what created what was called then the Free Syrian Army. And after this complete refusal by powerful countries to step in diplomatically and say, we will not let you kill that much. Well, then indeed, many civilians took up arms, left whatever jobs they were doing and took up arms and joined the Free Syrian Army. And even then, we could not really say it was a full-fledged civil war. It was still small battles in different villages where the Free Syrian Army would stop the attacks from Assad's army. So there were still no attempts by those defected officers and soldiers and by those who joined them to try to take something from the regime. At the time, it was, for the most part, a defensive action or reaction to the regime. But of course, the regime from day one wanted to portray this as a conspiracy from the West, from Israel, from the Gulf countries. And very quickly, 
it involved its own allies. So we had Iran and Iran-backed militias, the biggest and best known of which is Hezbollah, which is considered today a terrorist organization by the EU and most Western democracies. And it allowed things to escalate. Today, we certainly are in a proxy war and we certainly are in a civil war. And there certainly is something called the jihadists and the extremists. But until 2014, until after the chemical massacre of August 2013, I think we can really focus on the fact that these were still, for the most part, civilians who had taken up arms. There were still very few foreign players within that muddle, and something could have been done. Today, we have a Russian presence, which is the fait accompli. We cannot wish that away. We have an Iranian presence, but we also have new avenues of diplomacy. We have a new administration coming in, into Washington very shortly. They seem to be going a different way from the Trump administration. We have a new situation in the UK where Brexit will be happening. And as of the 1st of January, we will have a more independent foreign policy from London. And from my perspective, these are opportunities for us to re-engage the international community, us Syrians, to re-engage with London, to re-engage with Brussels and with Washington. Simon, a colleague of mine, Philip Lee, then an MP, stood up in the chamber after our trip and predicted the chaos and trauma that ensued in Syria from what we'd seen. Could or should the UK have been more prepared for something like this? Could we have done more? It's the key question, really, and and as we just heard from Reem, the extraordinary evolution of the conflict over those first years, it wasn't inevitable that it took the course that it did. The regime was pretty much every Friday during the first year until we closed the embassy and I I left Damascus at that point, although I obviously continued to to take a personal interest in, in events, and I stayed involved with the region subsequently as, as ambassador in Iraq. But during that first year in particular, every Friday, pretty much, the regime would escalate the repression in one place. You know, they would move from automatic gunfire to heavy machine gunfire to, you know, using converted anti-aircraft cannon and the barrel bombing from the helicopters against civilian populations. As the Free Syrian Army began to defend civilian areas. Regime attacks increasingly did not target alleged terrorists specifically. It didn't target the armed opposition specifically. They were targeting bakeries and clinics and places where civilians gathered. And the message they were seeking to send was, if you give safe harbour to oppositionists, then this is what will happen to you. They cannot protect you. The only people who can protect you from us is us. That was basically the regime's message as far as I could see to its own people. What more could the West have done? I think there's the political pressure, economic pressure was there. It could have been intensified sooner. It could have been better coordinated. There were efforts made through the UN to get a political dialogue going and all of that. I'm sure more might have been attempted with hindsight, but would that have been enough 
to make a difference. I'm really not sure. When you have a, a regime with air power, with heavy weapons, with increased intelligence and other advice from Iran and the use of proxy militias as been described, particularly Hezbollah with their capabilities. When you have those forces on the ground, a political and economic response will only get you so far. And the regime throughout, you know, after the initial domestic efforts to get a dialogue going, there were UN-led efforts and it was clear always that, you know, the, the regime was in effect playing for time. They were talking to keep the internationals engaged and not to escalate further, to keep people focused on a diplomatic and political track whilst they carried on using the violence that they were using on the ground. So unless an outside actor is prepared to get involved militarily, and people sometimes drew the comparison with Libya and the intervention there. Now, I'm not a military person, I'm a, I'm a civilian, but there is quite a difference between the open desert spaces of much of Libya and the terrain and human geography of, of Syria, where people live in, not just in the large cities, but in, in towns and villages. That kind of urban environment is very difficult for any armed force, and particularly a foreign one, an external one, an international one, to seek to control. So, um, as Reem said, the... the Syrian protesters and the activists and the people who wanted to, you know, perfectly legitimately to seek to build a new Syria were not calling for a Western military intervention. They were very careful not to call for that because I think many of them understood also in the same way that Western decision makers understood that this was not an easy option and, and not necessarily one that would help. Now, was there something that could have been done diplomatically to sidestep the Russian intervention. You know, there were some big moments. People who want to know more can, can read about the walk in the woods that then-President Obama took whilst considering decisions about intervention. It's not obvious to me that it would have been able to produce the, the results that would have been intended. The costs would have been clear, but the outcome would not necessarily have been clear. And it torments me. I think it's the shame of our generation, because as Reem says, the consequences of this continue to this day. And we must now look to see what might be done with a new administration in Washington, with the UK, with the European Union, to relaunch some kind of diplomatic activity. This is not a, a humanitarian task only, although it is massively humanitarian. The huge numbers of internally displaced people within Syria, the refugees outside Syria, you know, something like half the country has been displaced one way or another. And the impact on the regime and on Europe, the refugee flow, the extremism question, the consequence that Russia was allowed back into the region in effect for the first time in a generation. People are going to be talking about relaunching an Iranian nuclear deal or about the American the Biden administration possibly coming back in, that that agreement was reached at a time when Iran was not asked to make commitments about its regional behaviour. And so it continued to export and use militias and proxy forces around the region, including but not only in, in Syria and in Lebanon. So these questions are now in front of us. 
I'm no longer actively involved as a diplomat, but I doubt that there are easy answers. Frankly, if there were, we would have found them. You're listening to CMEX podcast, looking at the Arab Spring a decade on in Syria. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm talking to former UK ambassador to Syria, Simon Collis, and Syrian-born writer, editor and public speaker, Reem Alaf. Reem, could or should the West realistically have done more? Would it have helped? I can only agree with Simon. It is easy to say, and it's much more difficult to affect change in the way the Assad regime was behaving. But I personally do believe that the inaction of President Obama's administration following the infamous red line you know, condition, which we all have uh, talked about for years now, I do believe this would have made a difference. It would have not let the Assad regime believe that it was able to get away with anything, because this is the lesson that the Assad regime learned in the end, that it can get away with something and it needs to regulate its level of violence. And, you know, everybody else will pretend this is not happening. The inaction following the first big chemical massacre also, in my opinion, allowed Russia and Putin to believe, rightly believe, that there would be no big fuss about their getting involved in the region. As Simon mentioned, they are now there after an absence of years in a region where this has been, for the most part, an Anglo-American and to some extent a French area of influence. Now we have the Russians. I don't believe that had the Assad regime been stopped dead in its tracks, following the chemical massacre, it would have been as easy for Putin to waltz into Syria and to waltz into Ukraine and to annex Crimea. So so in my opinion, the repercussions of inaction on Syria have concerned not just Syria, but have had a ripple effect on a number of other problem areas around the world. And I'm not uh, comparing, of course, Ukraine and Syria, But I am saying that this difficulty to reach an international consensus on what to do, with all the understanding that it would have been very difficult, as Simon very accurately explained, to have a Libya-style intervention in Syria. We all understand that. But the Assad regime is a regime that only reacts when it knows there is a credible threat. This is how... Bashar Assad was forced to leave Lebanon hurriedly after over two decades of Syrian troops being there in Lebanon and running the country because they believed that if they did not do something, there would be consequences. There was a convergence of circumstances which Assad interpreted correctly, that the West was only, and I use the West in the broad term, I mean, of course, the influential Western democracies who could have done something, including the UK, Bashar Assad believed correctly that there was only so much they would do. And after a while, the Friends of Syria group, which had been formed mostly for uh, humanitarian purposes, but also for some political pressure, began to meet uh, more and more seldom and began to uh, issue, uh, you know, weaker statements. And today, we are in a situation where the very countries who were speaking about regime change, either directly or indirectly, today only speak about 
a change in regime behavior. Now, this is music, of course, not just to Bashar Assad's ear, but also to Putin's ears and to the Iranian regime. And I, again, strongly, strongly believe that all is not lost. A lot has been lost for up to a million uh, casualties of, of, of the Assad regime's um, barbarity, frankly, and brutality. There's over half the population, as Simon mentioned, which has become displaced and which has nowhere to come back to because entire cities were destroyed, the infrastructure was destroyed, and there has been huge attempts by the regime to, to, to do what is known as demographic engineering, where different segments of Syrian society were brought in to the homes of Syrians who had to flee. So these are all issues that will still affect our common security and our common stability. Thanks, Reem. Simon, how has Russia's involvement changed the region? I'm not any kind of expert on Russia, but I, I think the analysis that Reem just gave is, is one that I very much share. It felt like a more opportunistic intervention when it was stepped up into Syria. And it has the consequences that Reem has described. You know, you, there's a sort of element of you broke it, you own it about Syria right now. There is a lack of credible international diplomatic activity right now, which hopefully can be addressed over the coming year. Although, again, I would be careful about predicting scope for success. But the fact that something is hard doesn't mean that you shouldn't try, because the costs are, as Reem says, real, first of all, to Syrians, but also to the wider region, and beyond that, to our own security and other interests. There is a strong interest in getting a sustainably stable region and one that allows people to live in in some kind of dignity again. But at the moment, you know, the international discussions about this seem to be taking place in part between Turkey, Iran and Russia, and the West isn't there. Although we've yet to hear from President-elect Biden about Syria, it's clear that his national security team will involve many people who have a lot of familiarity with the region, starting with Secretary of State designate Anthony Blinken. And President-elect Biden himself stated clearly uh, a couple of days ago that America is back at the table as far as international activity goes when he was presenting his foreign policy team. So I think it will be really important for those who care about Syria and about the future of Syria and of the Syrian people to engage in a conversation with the incoming administration about what being back at the head of the table means, might mean, in a Syrian context, in a, an Iran context, and in a Russia context, and to see where that leads. I suspect that any improvement in Syria will not happen as a result of an isolated initiative focused only on Syria, but as part of some wider arrangement that covers all of those broader issues. And yes, I certainly agree that it would be appropriate for the UK to aim to play a part, to play a, a significant part in helping to promote that dialogue and that progress. Simon and Reem, I'll ask you both this. What can and what should the West do now and why? The West has to, in my opinion, make it very clear to President Putin and to President Erdogan, and I'm grateful to Simon for bringing it up, we did not bring up Turkey in detail yet, you know, make it very clear to them that they do not decide 
on everything that happens in the region by themselves, that this is not their playground, this is not their turf by themselves. The West cannot be held hostage by Erdogan acting as border patrol and deciding whenever he wants that he can threaten the West and the Europeans by saying, okay, you don't do things the way I want. I open the floodgates and the refugees can go back in. This is unsustainable and was a very bad idea to begin with. Uh, this is one of the, the decisions which I believe the EU will regret. But be that as it may, we know that we are at a situation, we are coming up in March to the 10th anniversary of the civilian uprising, and, and we are in, in a terrible state. But my hope hinges on precisely the despair, as I understand it, of Putin to get his Syria problem over and done with. I do not believe for a moment that Putin is wedded to Assad. On the contrary, he has allowed his media in the past few months to criticize openly the incompetence of the Assad regime. Syria is not yet Chechnya for Putin, and he will not be able to consider the case closed until he manages to get some reconstruction in the country because he knows this is not going to happen until he gives concessions. So I think we have London and Paris and Brussels and Washington and Berlin who are there to say, well, you know what? You want something from us. Guess what? We want something from you as well. We need to have some flexibility uh, from Putin in allowing the kind of refugees we want to in their own uh, homes again. You have to pressure Assad to allow that. You have to pressure Assad on the Constitutional Committee, which, by the way, the vast majority of Syrians do not care about nor believe in. But this is something that has been agreed by the United Nations Security Council unanimously under Resolution 2254. So at the very least, we have a thread which can lead us to somewhere so they can force Putin to not allow Assad to conduct so-called presidential elections coming up in 2021, force him to put in this transitional government, which the UN Security Council has already agreed upon. And I think that in those different ways, the Western powers can be involved again in Syria because it interests them. It, it's, it's in their you know, security and in, 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 in their stability uh, interests. And they can also do something for Syrians, even after 10 years. And finally, to you, Simon, how do you think the West should act now over Syria? Or should it act at all? To pretend that we can ignore Syria, we can't. So facing facts is the first step. Secondly, I think to listen to the Syrian people, to the voices of people like Reem, also to people inside the country where it's possible to understand and reach that, including minorities, and to try and understand what their view is of what a transitional government might look like, one that involves regime elements. Thirdly, to maintain humanitarian support, meanwhile, to Syrian refugees in neighbouring countries and to the host population of those countries as well, importantly. I think that's a humanitarian matter and it's also, there is more likelihood that people will be able to return home eventually if they have not relocated too far away. And it also, frankly, speaks to the concerns about migration and refugees across much of Europe. Next, I think to look ahead to what a 
reconstruction in in Syria might look like, the economic incentives for that and what that package might look like. And lastly, to look at the scope for how might all of this be assembled and delivered, probably as part of a wider approach to regional issues that does involve Iran, does involve Turkey, does involve Russia, does involve the other Arab countries, the conservative countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council and in in Egypt, because they all have a stake in the future stability of the region and Syria will not find a way to peace unless they are on board with it. Reem and Simon, thank you so much for talking to us today about such a difficult and traumatic, but such an important subject. And Simon, it's an honour to have you as an ex-ambassador who was in Syria at the time. But may I say, Reem, it's especially good to have you speaking to us It's so seldom, actually, but so important that we actually get a view from the ground um, and a view from Syrians. It's very easy for us often to talk about a place. It's been invaluable having your experience and your knowledge and your expertise with us today. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you for having us. I'm delighted that you chose me to be with Simon. Ambassador Collis, it's always a pleasure. And I hope that we meet again sometime soon. And all the best to you and your lovely wife in Riyadh. Thank you, Reem. It's, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And to hear your perspective on it in that way is great. Mm-hmm.